Hi, welcome. This is Yolanda and I'm reading to you from the memoirs of President Joseph Smith III, 1832 to 1914. And we've reached page 153 of chapter... Which chapter was beyond? Let me just have a look. Oopsie. 18. Okay, we're on chapter 18. And this is entitled A Fertile Land, this section that we're on. Enjoy. These settlers were for the most part farmers and general utility men and became active agriculturalists. It is said John M. Horner was the first in that locality to make use of the afterwards celebrated harvester known as the header. The wide plains of California offered them a wonderful field for all agricultural products products especially cereals <clears throat> i had i heard many tales of the great fertility and productiveness of that early soil in my ride from santa rosa with brother john cooper we went over a certain tract of land upon which his father had settled divided in a later survey upon which he stated they had raised as high as 130 sacks of weeds to the acre a sack meaning 100 pounds in 1876, when he made this statement, they were counting themselves fortunate if they could raise from 25 to 30 stacks per acre. Abundant evidences verified the stories told about the productivity of the soil. It was a rich delta which had followed the streams and had been gathered for years. It was very light and of wonderful quality. Aided by irrigation, where irrigation was practicable, it would produce anything, whether indigenous to the soil or not, including all kinds of fruit. Along a fence at the home of Brother Cooper, I saw three stalks of cabbage, which had borne their portion in a queer manner. A cabbage head would be produced with a sprout near it. The head would mature and be cut off, and the sprout would then develop into a second head, which in due time would be harvested, leaving its accompanying sprout to perfect itself. This had been repeated over a year and half when I was shown the, to me, novelty. <laughs> I like his wording. <clears throat> um, beets grew the year round. I saw one in the yard of Brother D.S. Mills at Old Mission San Jose that had been growing over a year and measured when pulled two and one half feet in length, the larger portion grown above the ground. On one of my morning walks at a place near Washington Corners, I saw an 11-acre field from which had been cut a crop of wheat. The bundles were lying so thick all over the area that I was able to walk about, stepping only on the bundles from one to another. The stalks of the wheat, as they lay in the bundles, averaged four and one-half to five feet in length, and at that, since the stubble was so high, it had not been cut very close to the ground. Another thing of note about this field of wheat was that the grain had been cut before it was fully ripe. The reason for this, as explained to me, was that the ground about was fairly honeycombed with squirrels, which had begun their ravages, pulling the stalks down in order to reach the contents at the heads. Hence the owner preferred to cut it a bit unripe and let it lie subject to their further attacks than to have to have harvested it later all tangled up by the pests 
<clears throat> this rodent has become such a nuisance and was so destructive that the farmers had begun an active campaign for its extermination. They would soak grain in a poisonous solution and scatter it over the ground and many thousands of the animals had been killed. I believe in those areas under cultivation they finally succeeded in getting rid of the marauders. A very favourable... Tripping over my tongue again. I will begin again. A very favourable climate condition of the country was that the wheat could be sown in the fall and then the rains, beginning usually about November, would cause a most luscious and rapid growth. Soon after the winter rains were over, the grain could be cut, threshed, put into sacks, usually manila, and holding £100 each and left stacked upright on the field for months if necessary, without danger of being damaged through rain. The only drawback to the success of this method was it seemed that the texture or quality of the sacks use, used would deteriorate through action of the sun, become loose and brittle and the grain would spill. Another difficulty that was, um, was that it was necessary to fence the stacked grain against the maraudering ground squirrels which would attack the bottom of the sacks and make trouble. Sometimes the sacks would be covered with tarpaulin and sometimes with straw. To me it seemed an admirable, admirable provision for local needs that since humans... I will start again. To me it seemed an admirable provision for locals needs that since human help was scarce machinery could be used the crops secured and harvested and then the owners could haul it off at their leisure however in consideration of this matter of hauling there was one drawback due to climatic characteristics and quality of soil which the husbandmen had to overcome freezing is very seldom experienced in california though once when I was there in winter, some shifting of the isotherm lines had resulted in a frost that killed certain kinds of vegetation in places that had never known such a temperature before. Some water pipes of the city were broken through freezing, and I recall seeing tomato vines and flowers in Brother Stiver's garden that were destroyed. <clears throat> but ordinarily... Instead of having hard frozen ground over which to haul grain to market or elevators, as we do in the north, they had to use roads which, because of the loose dry soil, not sandy enough to be solid under the wagon wheels, would be cut into deep ruts. Sometimes it was necessary for the farmers to cover deep with straw the entire route of their highway to the nearest city in order to get the required footing for the horse for the horses or to fill up the formidable chunk hole, chuck holes which made hauling so difficult there for both teams and drivers. The wagons they used, I noticed, were of various types from the light one drawn by a single team to the ponderous overland wagon hauled by four, six or even more teams. In recording incidents of this, my first visit to California, I may overemphasize these items connected with this farming industries. If so, it is because having been trained as a farmer myself, these things attracted my attention and interest and I tried to make myself acquainted with the conditions affecting them. There was an aftermath which followed the harvesting of grain, which seemed of a peculiar character. 
Usually the loose grains which fell to the ground during harvest would spring quickly into life, upon which, after crop, the farmers depended for pasturage for their cattle during the wet season, which forms the California winter. Sometimes a difficulty arose here. If the rains came unusually early in the fall and the aftermath prematurely developed and there followed a period of dry weather, the practically useless, the pasturage would wither and become practically useless. The autumn I was there, rain fairly in early October, with the result described. The farmers were obliged to drive their cattle away from the dried up cultivated fields to the virgin growths on the deserts in order to keep them through the winter. Around about the old mission at San Jose and Washington Corners, where I usually lodged at Brother Mills, I noticed a weed which grew up after the grain was cut. It was called tarweed from the fact that the that after nightfall, when the air cooled, it exuded a kind of fluid which smelt like tar. It was a sticky substance and clung tenaciously to the clothing or shoes or to the legs, noses and bodies of the cattle grazing in the fields. In the case of sheep, I was told, it was sometimes necessary to wash the annoying accumulations from the heads and faces of the animals. The plant was especially annoying as it was not of an edible nature and quite useless for any purpose. <clears throat> there was another plant, the whorehound, which grew luxuriously by the sides of the roads and away from cultivated fields. It was not noxious and probably had no objectionable effect upon the pasturage of horses, cattle or sheep, but I remember how I learned of its existence. Sister Mills was a good cook, her bread, pancakes and biscuit being especially excellent. I used to fill with a good supply of her buttered biscuit and jelly or honey I was able to jewel, to dine like a king. One evening, along with some of her excellent biscuit, she served some honey which upon tasting I found had a very peculiar flavour. How is this, Sister Mills? Haven't you given us this haven't you given us the medicated honey? <laughs> upon which she and Brother Mills laughed heartily. They explained that it was the regular product of the bees as taken from the hives, but that the nectar had been gathered from the hawhound blossoms in the absence of other for flowering forage. From its rather bitter, pungent flavour, I had supposed it was some honey they had purposely mixed with hawhead to use for colds and coughs. I became quite fond of it and remember that I ate it quite freely during my visit there. Often I noticed in places a heavy growth of a small shrub-like plant called burr thistle. Because of the abundance of small spiny covered burrs it bore, they were about the size of a small hazelnut and of a woody nature which made them inedible for cattle. There were four other kinds of thistles in this locality. There was one called the chili thistle which had come into California from the south and was certainly a first cousin, if not a counterpart of the pest known in the northern state as Canada thistle, to guard against which such strenuous laws have been put on many statute books. Then there were the common burr thistle, the ordinary variety, and what is called in Illinois and Iowa the sow thistle, 
Beside these, in one garden we visited, I saw a Scotch thistle, which had been brought from the old country by a Scotchman who wanted something with him to remind him of his native land. I noted with pleasure the expanse of hills covered with luxuriant growths of many descriptions. There was a grass called Alfilaria, commonly called pinweed. There were wild oats and a burr clover, quite a different product from the burr thistle just mentioned. It is something like our red clover in structure, though the leaf is different. <coughs> As is also the seed-bearing vessels, which might be likened to a short pea pod filled with tiny peas and twisted into a spiral burr about the size of an ordinary gooseberry. This burr is filled with seed very much like that of the red clover, though a trifle larger. The plant springs so let me start again. The plant springs up with the coming of the winter rains, grows rapidly and bears a full crop. After the rain ceases, it matures, quickly dies down, the leaves fall and the plant finally topples over, leaving its product scattered on the ground. In passing a hillside in Southern California, on one occasion, I saw a herd of fine cattle, large and well-conditioned. This somewhat surprised me, for there appeared to be nothing on the hills for them to eat. I asked Brother Mills what made them so large and fat, and he said it was the burr clover. This surprised me more, for none was anywhere in sight. Then he stopped the team, and we got out, and over the fence, into the fields we went. There, in the ledges and hollows, left in longitudinal creases across the hillsides by the manner of cultivating in order to protect from washouts by the rain were great quantities of this burr clover product. Curious, I myself gathered up handfuls of the seed-bearing burrs, their dried leaves absolutely filled with this rich, fat-producing harvest. Again, I, won I pondered on the wonderful provision God has made for his creatures under every condition of earth life. Here these cattle, browsing on barren hills from which all vegetation had disappeared, found food in abundance and of a quality not only to sustain life but to add in a marked degree to their value as beef products. Verily, the earth is the Lord's and the cattle on a thousand hills. Why should he not provide for his own? One familiar plant I saw was the castor bean Produced in many places in the north for its medicinal oil in Southern California, an experiment was made in growing this plant as a speculative venture. It proved a failure, however, for the plants, while growing luxuriantly, often as large as ordinary peach trees, did not produce beans with any profitable amount of oil. In the north, two or three beans would prove effective, but those in California seemed without medicinal power. At Santa Ana, I saw growing maize, like ours, with stalks from 12 to 15 feet in height, but barren of ears or corn. When I expressed to Brother Mills my doubts about the state being able to produce corn at all, he took me out to a place much nearer the sea, where I discovered corn like that grown in Illinois. It was much softer in texture, however and lacked the hardness and flintiness of our kernels. In fact, it was much like that grown further south in, in the United States. Next heading, fellow workers.
Leaving these memories of material things which have been of interest to me on my trips to the Golden State, I pass to some which are connected with individuals. It is quite unnecessary for the purposes of these memoirs to name all, pe all the people who have entered into the rather kaleidoscopic experiences of my career, nor is it essential to record the minor events of everyday life or those occurring in my journeys to and fro to the prosecution of my missions. It will be well, however, to notice more particularly some individuals because of the conditions which linked my life with theirs. Brother Edmund C. Briggs had been carrying on some of our work in the Pacific Slope Mission and had come in contact with conditions which gave rise to the old question, who should be greatest? I think I've briefly referred to this controversy in another place. At a conference, some ordinations of 70 and high priests had occurred, followed by a discussion as to certain rights and authority. Sides had been taken and the matter rather, rather warmly discussed by Edmund C. Brand, George P. Dykes, William Potter and a number who had accepted the ministry of elders preceding Brother Briggs. The contention resulted in a number being disfellowshipped at a conference over which Brother Briggs presided and appeal from his action had been taken to the High Council. That council had been organised at Plano and upon consideration of the affairs had decided that procedure in the matter of ordaining high priests and seventies should conform to the rules as given in the revelation contained in the Book of Covenants and that the ordinations against which objection had been made were irregular. I am glad to recall that by careful and tactful Manipulation, the difficulties had been so well adjusted that the greater number, including Dykes, Brand and Potter, who seemed to be leaders in the contention, had been won over and remained in active service in the ministry. Thought the latter only in a local manner. I think that's a misprint there, though I think it should say that though the latter only in a local manner. This uh, brother Potter was an odd character. From him I gathered quite a number of details about the early days of the church in California. At Oakland I became acquainted, as I have said, with Elder John Roberts. He had been quite active in the days of brother Harvey Green and others preceding and had earned the extreme confidence of the saints all along the coast as far as he was known. At the time I met him, he was badly afflicted with rheumatism which had unfitted him for the practice of his trade, that of carpentry. His family consisted of wife and one grown child. I mentioned him in particular for our acquaintance was of an enjoyable character and subsequent events served to bring him more prominently before me. At the time of my visit to Oakland, San Francisco, Sacramento and other portions of the Northern Territory, I found no church troubles to investigate or attempt to adjust. The judicious labours there of Brother D.S. Mills, together with his associates and brethren Alexander Smith, James W. Gillen, E.C. Briggs, E.C. Brand, Joseph Burton and others had removed the chief difficulties and a fair degree of spiritual prosperity was being enjoyed by the saints throughout the mission. Next heading, baptisms. In Santa Ana, upon one occasion, I think now that it was at a later visit, a woman came to me at the preaching service and asked if I remembered her. 
I think I do. Isn't your name St. Clair? And did I not baptise you in Plano a number of years ago? She laughed and answered, You are right, Brother Joseph. And do you remember the boy I took to raise? Referring to her husband, who was a few years younger than her, than she, who was not convinced of the gospel when I obeyed it. You remember I promised that I would educate him and bring him to you by and by to be received into the church. Yes, Sister Sinclair, I do. Where is that boy right now? Um, where is that boy now? Right here, she answered, and I have kept my promise. Her husband came forward for introduction and then asked for baptism at my hands. In looking for a place <clears throat> to perform this service, I was taken to the farm of Uncle John Garner, not far from the city. There was a water tank ten feet wide with some six or seven inch pipes carrying a large flow of water in and out of it for irrigation purposes. I was asked if I could baptise a man in that tank and replied that I thought I could provide in he was not more than ten feet tall. <laughs> this reply caused a ripple of laughter, which I did not understand until someone explained that a few days before Elder John Brush, over seventy years old, had undertaken to baptise there and had struck the head of the candidate against the edge of the tank, inflicting quite a bad bruise. When Brother Vincent St. Clair and I got into the tank for the purpose of baptism, I noticed there was considerable curiosity as to how I would manage, instead of standing in the centre of the tank, as Uncle John must have done, I placed him with his toes touching the wall, thus allowing us the entire width of the tank for his height. The simplicity of the solution seemed to amuse the brethren when they discussed it later, though how Uncle John Brush had failed to take that advantage, I cannot imagine. Next heading, Elder William William Gibson. One day also at the time of that 1889 visit to San Bernardino and Santa Anna, I performed nine baptisms at the residence of Brother Penfold in a small lake which he had made from his flowing well. At the nine of the nine baptisms, only one was a boy, though all were young. They were to be confirmed at a reunion or conference meeting. When the time came, one was absent, a girl about 16 whose parents lived in or near San Bernardino. Brother, I keep tripping over my words, don't I? Sorry. <laughs> Be patient with me. Here we go, say it again. Brother Gibson, in charge of the mission work, made inquiry later about her absence and learned from the mother that she, the mother, desired the girl to be confirmed into the Church of England instead. The farmer, it wasn't the farmer, the father, a man engaged in buying and selling cattle, did not belong to any church, but had allowed his wife to adopt whatever form of religion she chose. She was nominally a member of our church, but for some time had been attending the episcopal services because their church was nearer to her home than ours. The condition resolved itself into a kind of threefold family argument. The father, dividend, a bit sarcastic about all religious professions and doubtful about our claims. The mother acknowledging allegiance to our faith and yet thinking it better for a girl to be in fellowship with the Church of England congregation, whose pastor inconsistently, we thought, had expressed his willingness to receive her on our, bapti receive her on our baptism. And the girl herself demurring to that 
proposition, opposing her mother's wishes and stating her preference to unite with us and be confirmed into regular church membership. Brother Gibson thought it wise for us to have a talk with the mother and daughter before proceeding with the confirmation as the girl desired. The father was not present when we called for this purpose, although he was in an adjoining room and, as I afterwards learned, overheard the conversation. We stated plainly our position, disclaimed any desire or intention of compelling the girl to go on with the company, with the ceremony in defiance of her mother, showed the inconsistency of such a compromise as the latter had planned and the pastor had approved, and finally urged that the girl ought to be left to make her own choice in the matter, pointing out the fact that she was old enough to do so and that her mother should make her feel free so she free to so decide if she saw fit to unite with the church of england we would interpose no objection if she preferred to remain with us her parents should not object and we were prepared to complete her induction into our organization somewhat to the chagrin of the mother and as was afterwards stated the pleasure of the father the girl decided to remain with us and to receive confirmation under the hands of our elders instead of under the hands of the Church of England minister. So at a prayer service, I confirmed her. I'm going to stop there a moment. I was um, in the Church of England before I was uh, a Latter-day Saint. And in the Church of England, we didn't do these confirmations that they're talking about. We did, um, there was a like water on the head or a cross on the head with the hands from a from a font of water so i don't know what this is talking about a confirmation confirmation in the roman catholic church but this is that's me puzzled <laughs> i need to look into it anyway back on with the um the paragraph so at a prayer service I confirmed her, which was to us a very satisfactory termination of the rather peculiar situation which had been discussed by the neighbouring citizens pretty freely when they learned of the controversy that had been raised. At St Bernardino there was a young man acquainted with the family by the name of Goodsell, who had once been a member of the church and had served it in the capacity of secretary appointed by conference. This position he filled for nearly a year, and then for reasons best known to himself in studying law, he drifted away from the faith and withdrew himself from fellowship. He came out to hear me preach, and I had some conversation and I had some conversation with him. At the time he was being considered a candidate for judgeship, but whether or not he was successful in seeking this office, I do not know. I think he never reunited with the church. Next heading, two testimonies. I met here at San Bernardino also, either upon the occasion of their visit or a later one, two individuals from whom I had hoped to hear something definite in regard to conditions at Nauvoo prior to my father's death, and as to whether polygamy or spiritual wifery was then known to exist or not. One of these, by the name of Seely, I had known as a boy. When with his wife he had been rather a leader of society in Nauvoo and lived with or near a Mr Hill jeweller and watchmaker on the hill near the temple lot. 
I had been told that this man, Seely, had definite knowledge of such things and would tell me all about them, and so naturally I was anxious to meet him in order to question him about them. One day, Uncle John Garner, at whose house I was staying, took me with him as he drove into town for some supplies. We stopped near the store and there met, upon the sidewalk, this Mr. Seely. Uncle John introduced us and then passed on into the store to do his trading, leaving us to converse outside. I began asking him a series of questions, to which his answers were more or less vague. I then decided to put the questions to him too plainly for him to evade them, with the result that he said he preferred not to state what he knew. Mr Seely, I'm extremely anxious to know the truth about these matters. I have been told repeatedly that you are the one who can tell me positively whether or not my father was connected with the doctrine of plural marriage or polygamy as it developed in Utah. I wish, if you have definite information about this matter, you would give it to me in a straightforward and positive manner. He looked at me silently a moment and then, taking his foot off the hub of the carriage wheel where it had rested, straightened up and raising his hands above his head in a deprecatory gesture, said, um, Brother Smith, I wish I did know, an answer which astonished me greatly and also gave me, may I add, much satisfaction. Is this all you can tell me? I asked. Why, I have been told emphatically that you could tell me about the conditions there in terms I would not like to hear. And now all the answer I get from you is that to wished you knew. <laughs> well, I can't help it, Brother Smith. That is all the answer I can give you, for I do not know. Upon the occasion of another visit to San Bernardino, made with brother E. L. Kelly, I took supper with Mr. Seeley, and again he stated, as he had the first time, that he could give no definite answer to the question I had asked him. The inevitable conclusion was that, personally, he knew nothing about it, and that what he did know was only what somebody else said had told him subsequently to my father's death. Brother John Garner returned to his carriage after Mr. Celia left me, and on the way home I told him the substance of our conversation. He expressed great surprise that I had not elicited something definite for, from him. Like others, had been led to believe that the man really did know something which he was willing to state at any time and any place. The other person with whom I was anxious to converse upon the subject was Mrs. Caroline Huntington. She was the daughter of Hiram Clark a successful elder of the church from England, who had lived in the same block in which the Nauvoo Mansion Hotel was located. She had married William Huntington, son of John Huntington Sr., whose second wife was the widow of Edward Partridge. They had migrated west, where, after a time, she left him in utter disgust, refusing to live with him because he had entered into polygamy and took her own sister as a plural wife. Some years after this trip of 1876, I met William Huntington and his, his second wife at Springville, Utah, and an account of my visit there will appear further on in these memoirs. 
I renewed my acquaintance with Sister Caroline Huntington and was invited to take supper with her for the purpose of having the conversation I desired. We chatted very pleasantly for a while and then I opened up the subject I had in mind. I asked her what she knew in reference to my father's possible connection with plural or spiritual wifery at Nauvoo, stating that I had heard it said many times by those who should know that she had made various statements in regard to the matter. I assured her I should like to hear her, them from her own lips. To my surprise, to put it mildly, she positively refused to make any statement to me about it and denied having made any to others. I could get nothing further than that from her and left her with a strong impression that she even knew nothing herself which would implicate my father or for reasons known to herself preferred not to tell the story. I was also impressed with the thought that what knowledge she had or was supposed to have about the matter was that of hearsay only. Before I left, I had determined that should I have another opportunity to visit California and she were still living, I should take some one with me and call upon her again in an endeavour to get it possible. A more definite statement one way or the other. But when I returned to San Bernardino next, she was dead. And what she knew, if anything, had already been lodged with the infinite soul, with the infinite alone, um, to be revealed. If knowledge of them will be of value, when all secrets shall be brought to light. These two conversations with individuals said to be conversant with affairs of, at Nauvoo, and able to tell me truths about them which would settle my doubts and objections forever, thus resulted as have many others in utter failure to receive any such information. Next heading, an alarming illness. My stay in Southern California upon the occasion of my first visit was very pleasant. I became acquainted with a number of old-time saints whom I enjoyed knowing. One was a brother of Hiram P. Brown, who lived at Pomona with family, son and daughter, I think. He was quite a faithful man, somewhat eccentric, but not quite so much so as his lawyer brother. He had a pleasant little place where he raised fruit quite extensively. I never met him again after this visit, for he had passed over before my next one. Before leaving that section, I visited for a day or two with our aged brother, John Brush, also with Brother Penfold. While at Los Angeles, just prior to leaving for the northern cities en route home, I took a rather severe cold possibly through being exposed to what Brother Mills called a Mormon rain. The term needs explanation. Often in late summer and early fall, there comes a change in the atmosphere. The temperature drops several degrees lower than normal and is accompanied by a very strong north wind, which lifts the dust and small gravel from the ground and sends it flying over the country, pelting with rather appalling force the faces of travellers. Brother Mills and I encountered one of these storms, and not being accustomed to such a sudden change of temperature, I took cold, which soon developed into quite an illness. I had a cough, and there was considerable pain and pressure in, about my lungs, which aroused in me so, some fear that I was contracting serious lung trouble, which might result fatally. 
I cannot say that I had any special fear of dying or that I felt I was sick unto death, though the possibility entered my mind. I had once had a similar attack. It was upon the occasion of my visit to Amboy for the second conference of the church and had been brought on by exposure to the rain and by sitting in damp clothing in the unheated hall where our meetings were held. The condition seemed to develop rapidly towards pneumonia. With others, I was staying at the house of Sister Experience Dome, and my bed was a simple pallet on the floor. I felt so badly in the night, I wondered how I could possibly attend the conference next morning. I did not arouse anyone, feeling unwilling to complain. Placing my hands together above me, I asked the Lord if in his divine, divine wisdom it was necessary to me to be free from this that difficulty in my chest in order to attend to my duties on the morrow that he might permit me to fall asleep and to sleep unbrokenly until the morning and then arise relieved from the distress my prayers were heard for i slept calmly and when morning broke i arose entirely free from the affliction which had so oppressed me in the night the incidents of this circumstance came to mind when i fell ill in los angeles and I gratefully remembered my healing upon that occasion. So I made a similar request, only adding that if my work were finished, I might be permitted to go through the gates of death without suffering extreme pain or agony. The answer to my prayer came in this comforting way. I was visiting, visited by the Spirit at night and told specifically that my work was not done and that I should live to be an old man and should see the name of Latter-day Saint made honourable. It was as if an audible voice spoke to me and impressed this conviction upon me to a great and definite degree. In the morning I was much improved and in a few days was again in normal health. I'm going to stop there and just say that he did die when the church um, did regain its name because he managed to get polygamy stopped. It was stopped in the church's class last day saints so he did his work one of his works um since that time to this while i have had several colds i have not again suffered a pain in the lungs such as opposed me upon those two occasions it was september 28th when i left los angeles by train reaching san francisco i stopped with brother thomas Andrews and family while preaching in that city in Oakland and other places then I departed for Battle Mountain, Carson City, Jack Valley and other points of my trip towards home. That's the end of chapter 18. The next chapter is 19 on page 157 which I'll read in the next episode. Thank you for listening.